Father, thank you so much for your amazing grace. Thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness and for your mercy. Lord, that are anew every morning. Oh, Lord, this morning we just ask that we would have ears to hear you. Oh, Lord, we want hearts that are ready to receive. Lord, take away the hardness and the stubbornness, Lord, that builds up from the things of this world. And Lord, we pray that this morning as we just look at these verses, as we look at these words, your spirit would minister to our very souls and that we would be encouraged and strengthened and that we would grow, Lord, through this milk and this meat of the word. We just give you this time now. Lord, we ask for your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> okay, so let's um, jump in. Last week we got as far as verse 10, but I thought it might be good just to have a very, very quick uh, read through those verses that we started looking at last time. Uh, we're not going to study them. We did that obviously in detail last time anyway. So um, <clears throat> we start the chapter um, with five things that will stop spiritual growth. That's what we find in first one. So, wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile, hypocrisies, envies, and all evil speakings. There's five things that will stunt and stop spiritual growth. And then Peter says, and leads us on to now, how to grow spiritually. So the next verse tells us, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word, that you may grow thereby. Well, that then leads us on to the next three, next two verses, verses three and four. And it's really what Christ is to believers. And we're told, so if so be you have tasted that the Lord is gracious to whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. That's what Christ is to believers. Following on, Peter then tells us what believers are to God. And we read in verse 5, you also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Well, Peter then tells us what Christ is to believers, again, this is another uh, statement of what Jesus should be to us or should mean to us. Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay inside a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believes on him shall not be confounded. And then we have, in contrast to that, what Christ is to sinners. Unto you, therefore, which believe he is precious, but unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner. And a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offence, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, where unto also they were appointed. It's quite a, a bold statement. It's often we try and soften these things, but the scripture is very clear that there's a big dis distinction, a uh, big demarcation between those who are gods and those who are not. And then the next couple of verses, it's really what believers are to God. And we read this. But you're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. There's two things there. that We're, we're royal, we're royalty, but we're also a priesthood. Just as Jesus was a king and a priest. Now he's a the priest that intercedes for us before our Father in heaven. 
but he's also royalty. He was legally entitled to sit on the throne of David. Uh, he is of that royal line. Uh, and we are in the same way made kings and priests, royal priests of the holy nation. We're told a peculiar people that you should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Again, the book of Ephesians really um, puts it so beautifully, the way that we were dead in trespasses and sins, but God, two of the greatest words in the whole of the Bible, that if it hadn't have been for God intervening, we'd still be lost. But God has done this work that we have been called out of darkness into this marvelous light, which in time past were not a people. Yeah, we, we didn't have these blessings. We, we were not part of, as scripture puts it, the commonwealth of Israel. We, we were aliens, and we'll, Peter will pick up on that idea in a moment. Uh, we were not a people, but are now the people of God. We've been brought into this position, which had not obtained mercy. Now, we read this morning, our verse of the week from Daniel, was that we are uh, such that have attained this mercy. That mercy is new every morning. And God's faithfulness never ends. Um, but now have obtained mercy. So we were in that position of being separated from God, strangers. And now we've been brought into this relationship. So now really what we're going to look at in this next section uh, is very much focusing on our behavior as Christians. This is what Peter's going to really try to communicate to us. So uh, it's looking at specific ways that Christians should behave differently before the world. Okay, so, and we're going to see it as citizens, as slaves, as wives, and as husbands. So really, this next section is all about relationships. And even in familiar situations, uh, their conduct, the conduct of Christians, should be discernibly different. Now, sadly, as we look at the church today, as we look at many Christians, particularly many in the, the public eye, um, there isn't that um, agreement between their profession and their lifestyle. And it's so sad that often people that profess to follow Christ don't show it by the way that they live. It's been said before that that's one of the greatest stumbling blocks to many, that they don't want to to trust Jesus or turn to Jesus or look to Jesus because of the testimony of so many Christians. Uh, It's such a a sad state of affairs that that Christians who should bear this wonderful family likeness to, to Jesus Christ often end up putting people off by their conduct, by their lifestyle. People want to see something true in us. You know, the world often mocks us and jokes about Christians and, you know, we become the the the, the butt of their jokes and humor and so on. And yet at the same time, often when people are in a difficult situation, they will turn to a Christian. They will ask for advice or counsel or for an explanation of the situation. You know, the, the world recognizes the importance of some moral compass, even though at times they choose not to abide by that. And so, as Jesus said, we are to be salt and we're to be light in this world. We're not to be hidden. And so we should be right out there where people can see us. That's why it's so important that we don't just hide ourselves away as Christians. You know, it's lovely when we get to meet together and we have these very intimate times as a fellowship and we can grow together and we can learn, we can be very honest with each other. But, you know, it's not just about being, in a sense, within the, the four, world, four walls of the church and you know, hiding behind those kind of stained glass windows has been, been 
put before, we need to get out there and let people see the hope, the light, the joy that we have in our lives. And let's not talk about happiness. You know, happiness is okay. It's great. And there are things in our, in life that make us happy. We're talking about joy. It's something that's so much more deep rooted. It's not affected by situations or circumstances because it's built on hope. It's built upon the certainty that we have, the faith that we have. So in these next two verses, first of all, we're going to build this, uh, looking at relationships uh, piece that Peter's giving us now. Now, starting by looking at a Christian's relationship to others. And so Peter starts, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Now, initially, you, you, we, we will look at this in detail, but you know, it would seem that Peter's just addressing this to us. But get the context. This is about relationships. The world is looking. They're looking to us as a, a moral compass, in a sense. And if we allow ourselves to indulge in fleshly lusts, well, we're doing a disservice to other people. We are not representing Jesus to them. And where else are they going to find Jesus? If we don't show them through the, the light that is in us, they're not going to find the, in the things that they're looking at, in the things of the world. They're not going to find that hope. They're not going to find that, um, that, that sense of purpose that we have in Jesus Christ. And so this is not just about our own walk. It, it is that. But it's also about if we don't get our lives right as Christians, how are the world going to hear the gospel? The let, Let's break this, this verse down. First of all, Peter speaks about strangers here. Those who are loved by God are exhorted to live as strangers. And the word literally that Peter uses is aliens, not not extraterrestrial, um, but from a different place. And really, the idea in the Greek is those who live in a place that is not their home. That's exactly what we are and we should be. Sadly, all too often we make this world our home. We need to um, be separate from this world in the terms of our uh, the input into our lives, our in, the influences that, that affect us. We looked very much at those ideas as we were going through our study in the book of James, the things that influence us and, and the way that we live. It's used here, this, this phrase, uh, um, uh, pericuous in the, in the Greek, uh, again, the aliens idea, um, is used figuratively of Christians because our real home is in heaven. That's where we're citizens. You know, and we are pilgrims here, strangers in this world. We're on a journey, just as Abraham highlighted, that he didn't have a a, a proper dwelling here. He dwelt in tents. He, he had the wealth and the resource. He could have easily built mansions and, and castles and whatever else and walled cities. He had 318 trained servants. So we know he had resources. He had lots uh, in terms of uh, wealth and possessions. But he didn't make this world his home because he was looking for a builder or for a, for a building whose maker is God. Uh, you know, that's the idea that we should have. That whatever we have in this world, and look, possessions are not wrong, but everything we have should be used for God and for his glory. And we should never become so attached to those things that we lose sight of our real home and our real um, uh, possession, our real treasure, which is laid up in heaven. Again, we're just pilgrims. We're on a journey. You know, we're just passing through. And in our time here, we need to try and witness to and to share the gospel and let our light shine to as many as we possibly can, that they will see this glorious gospel that we have been undeservedly invited into, as we've already been looking, particularly those verses again, 9 and 10, uh, that we dwell on last time. 
So we need to be as strangers in the world. You know, let me just um, go off track, if I may, immediately, because there's just something so important. The Lord just laid this on my heart. I think it's just really worth just sharing. This is Psalm, Psalm 1. I'm sure you're familiar with this. But it just speaks of the danger we have of getting lured into the things of the world. It says, Psalm 1, Blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. It's a progression. Okay, saying blessed is the man that doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly. The danger is we end up walking in the counsel of the ungodly. We listen to what ungodly people say. We're all bombarded by the, the media, the world around us, all those the secular influences that are out there. And so we can end up walking. Uh, in that way but then the the next step is that you end up standing so you've stopped moving you've stopped walking you stand you know as if you're walking past and something grabs your attention and you stop to look at it that's what the world does it tries to draw us in and allure us and the next step downward progression is we end up sitting in the seat of the scornful and you end up as it were in that place where the world is looking at Christians and almost, oh, well, you know, that, that's, that's just Christians. I, I'm not like that. And we try and justify, we try and dissociate ourselves with, with the people of God. And of course, it's a very dangerous downward progression that the verse two carries on. It says, but he's delighted. This is the way we should be. We shouldn't go through that progression of, of walking and then getting caught, uh, attention getting caught and then sitting in the seat that's gone for. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law does he meditate day and night. Not in his law does he meditate from time to time. Not in his law does he meditate when he gets a bit of free time. Or you know maybe once a week or on a Sunday. But in his law does he meditate day and night. You know, this is partly a command. But it's also an admonition of how we should spend our time. Because if we don't spend our time day and night. We're going to end up in that position where we get drawn into those things of the world. The verse goes on just to talk about the blessings for those that are gods and the, the danger for those that are not. Now, in this verse, uh, it's, uh, it speaks about the, the uh, fleshly lust which war against the, the soul. Now, this word, um, I'm just uh, looking at one of the commentaries here, uh, it's uh, strategios. It's like where we get the word strategy from. Uh, and the commentary says, to serve as a soldier. To be drawn up in battle array, either to kill or to take captive. And it says fleshly lusts will do both if they are not conquered. You know, those fleshly lusts which war against the soul, they are lined up in battle array against us. They are looking either to kill you or to take you captive. You know, we, we, we sometimes dismiss these things and we talk sometimes about spiritual warfare and we push it to one side. And, you know, for most of us, we don't really uh, in our daily lives think that we encounter too much in the way of spiritual warfare. There are certain moments and certain situations. But for most Christians, we don't necessarily feel that we're on the front line. But the truth is we are, you know, and there are these malevolent forces out there. Um, there's fallen angels, the demonic spirits. There, of course, is the, the, the power of the enemy that is desperate to pull us away. They are lining up in array against us, using the things of this world to pull us away from God. And, and I, for one, have, have felt this. I've known this in my own life that there's been some intense struggles where I've really felt the, the lure of things of the world 
And yet at the same time, there's that gracious hand of God's spirit not letting us go. Well, the chapter concludes, and by God's grace, we'll get there in a short while, by telling us how much he holds on to us. But we must never be ignorant of this battle that we're in and how dangerous it is. Now, Chuck Misler put it this way, he says, No one is really a pilgrim in this biblical sense who has not first become a stranger to this world. Now, that implies choice on our part. We have a choice as to how we live, the things that we surround our lives with, the things we allow ourselves to be influenced by. And again, Chuck's saying that you're not really a pilgrim if you haven't made that decision to make this world not your home. Okay. You know, and just as their Christian values and beliefs are rejected by the world, so they are to live apart from the immorality and sinful desires that surround them. And arguably, we have never lived in a, in a time or in a generation where there is so much immorality all around us. And, you know, that's possibly quite a bold statement because you think back to the time of Rome. Rome was intensely immoral. The Greek Empire before it was intensely immoral. You know, and the things that they were into, no different than necessarily today. The difference today is it's so accessible to so many people. You know, at times in Rome, it was typically those that were wealthy, those were the um, that had the money, the resource, that could indulge in all sorts of things because they had the, the resource to do it. Today, anybody with a with a computer can get involved in all sorts of things that are not helpful, be it whatever kind of addiction, be it gambling uh, and those kind of dangers, um, just all sorts of insidious things. And, of course, you've got uh, the, the various lust, pornography, which is rampant uh, on the Internet. Everybody's aware of it. You know, but these are real dangers and we need to be so, so careful as Christians uh, that we don't get caught up in any of these things. You know, even computer games, we need to be so cautious and careful, um, not just for ourselves, but particularly for the younger generation, for children, that we monitor and watch and carefully look at the things they're getting involved in. Because these these uh, lusts, as it were, these things that are warring against the soul. Let me say again, let me just read that statement uh, from this, this commentary. Uh, is to serve as a soldier, to be drawn up in battle array, either to kill or to take, take captive. That's exactly what the enemy would have. All those, those lusts, be it whatever they are, you know, whatever things, you know, even just greed or the desire for material things, those things line up in array against you and they war not against your body, but against your soul. That's the real problem. They're warring against your soul. <clears throat> now we're told here we should abstain. Um, the, the word in the Greek, literally means to hold oneself constantly back from this requires effort it's a tug of war you know you you don't win a tug of war by just standing still you have to put effort in you have to pull the other way that's the idea you know this spiritual warfare that we're we're in uh we are engaged in you know and christians are to resist the sinward pull of those worldly desires which again war garrison themselves against their spiritual lives you know, in this real spiritual battle, a demonic strategy is to attack believers at their weakest points. And that's exactly what Satan will do through whichever mechanism, through whichever medium uh, he can do so. Be it through TV, uh, be it through advertising, as we just simply walk down the road, we see all sorts of influences, you know, be it through the Internet or whatever else. There's all sorts of ways that the devil will use to try and attack us at those weak points, to draw our hearts away. And again, reread Ephesians 6, which 
which speaks about the armor of God and expresses the need for us to be fully armored up every time we go out. You can't just walk out the door, you know, without that spiritual protection on, because if you do, you're leaving yourself open to attack from the enemy. Okay, so this is speaking again about how we should be in our relationship with the world. So we're told again, don't let those things uh, influence us, the, 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 um, the drawer of the world. Again, uh, let me just read that verse we just read. So, beseeching us to uh, strangers and pilgrims abstain from fleshly lusts. And he goes on and says, having your conversation. Now, that word conversation, we've said already in the King James, it just means your lifestyle, honest among the Gentiles. What a rare quality today uh, in business, in the world, in anywhere. You know, people that are genuinely honest, we don't see a lot of that. Everybody's very skeptical. Everybody's out for their own ends, you know. And this negative uh, exhortation that we just had in verse 11 is now followed by this positive instruction that Christians are to abstain from sinful desires, not only for their own spiritual well-being, but also in order to maintain an effective testimony before unbelievers. So again, we're told that we should have our conversation honest among the Gentiles. Now, just as, as an aside here, uh, Peter and Paul both use the term Gentiles not just to refer to non-Jews, but effectively we are clumped in here with the Jews in terms of the believers. So you have, of course, the Jews and the Gentiles, but then when the church uh, comes into play, the, the term Gentiles effectively means the rest of the unbelieving world. Okay, so we're kind of now separate from that in the, in the context that's being used here. So we have to have our conversation honest among the rest of the world, those that don't believe. That whereas they speak against you as evildoers, and of course the world does, they don't like the things we stand for, that we stand for truth, for justice, we stand for the things the word of God proclaims. The world doesn't like any of that stuff. They stand against us, but they may by your good works, which they shall behold... Glorify God in the day of visitation. Notice that it's our good works. Because we don't fall into those things of the world, the lust of the flesh and so on, is because of that and we do good works instead, that although they don't like it when we stand up and we, we make moral statements about how we should live, about the sanctity of marriage and all these other issues, well, they don't like that, but you know, they see the good works. They see the things that Christians do. And they'll, she'll behold, we're talking, then they shall glorify God in the day of visitation. It may not be yet. They may not glorify God right now, but there is a day coming. You know, this positive Christian lifestyle is a powerful means of convicting the world of sin. Now, the Holy Spirit is the one that brings conviction, but we've already made this point over recent weeks. The Holy Spirit indwells us. And through us, the Holy Spirit will bring conviction on those round about us. I think I've shared this with you before. There, there was a time, a number of years ago, uh, when I was uh, in a, a job, when I was working for working for BT, um, way way back, and the place that I were was working at, um, they had um, TV monitoring. Uh, we looked after uh, the TV for the whole region down in Kent. It all went through the BT uh, station. We had satellite dishes and you know um, radio um, dishes and things. Um, and our part of our job was to, to monitor the fees, make sure there was no problems and so on. Um, but on one occasion, an individual had brought in a um, less than desirable um, uh, video and had placed it on. Uh, and some of the guys were watching it. Now, I knew nothing about this. I walked into the room uh, and I realized straight away what was going on. And immediately I walked around and turned out the other way. Within two minutes, everybody else had turned it off and dispersed. 
It was just that influence of somebody godly in that environment that wasn't prepared to go along with the things they were going along with. And, and honestly, it was within two minutes. I think that, that they, they just felt convicted. They knew what they were doing was not right. And it's just an example of how our presence around unbelievers can have a powerful influence, you know, and this is why we need to be in tune with God, because you never know what you're going to stumble across. So firstly, you need to make sure that your heart and your mind, your soul are in tune with God, because you don't know what's coming. But secondly, so that you can be that light, so that you can shine brightly when situations like that occur, and you will have a positive impact on their lives. And who knows how many people will come to know the Lord because of situations where you just even just walk into a room and they recognize God's presence. They may not realize it, they may not fully understand the detail, but there's a conviction and it comes, of course, from the Holy Spirit. Now, this uh, word honest and good are actually the same words in the Greek. It's this word kalos. It's used twice here uh, that Peter uses uh, to define both Christian lives and their work. So it's saying I have in our conversation, okay, and our good works. It's the same word that our lifestyle and our works are both described in the same way as being something that's good, something that's wholesome, something that's a benefit to others. Again, before the critical eyes of slanderous people and their false accusations, the good deeds of believers can glorify God and win others to belief, as we were just saying. Now, the last word here to, to really pick out is the word visitation. It's saying that, that you know, there's going to come a day where because of the things that we've witnessed, we, we, we remove people's excuse. They can't turn around and say, oh, well, they didn't know. They felt that conviction of sin by our, our godly lifestyle, our example. Uh, what they should do is the, the whole point that Peter's making. And so there will come a day, uh, and he speaks of it, they will glorify God in the day of visitation. Well, what is that day? Um, well, it's really the day of his visitation. Okay, it's Speaking of God's presence among men. Um, in Luke 19:44, Jesus spoke using the same kind of term about the Jews had missed the time of their visitation. They missed the day the Messiah was presented to the nation. It was the very day that had been prophesied in Daniel about 500 years beforehand. And it had been clearly written down and recorded, and they missed that one really vitally important day for them. It was the day that Jesus arranged to, to ride into Jerusalem uh, on the donkey, as had been prophesied by Zechariah, the only day in his ministry that he presents himself as the king, uh, the Messiah Nagi, the prince who is to come. Um, this one uh, who is to, to rule and reign on the throne of David. And of course, they missed it. They missed the time of their visitation. And as a result of that, in Luke, we're told that blindness uh, was placed upon uh, the eyes of Israel. But this context now, the same idea, it's talking about the time when God's presence will come and be amongst them. It's talking about the time when Jesus will return and set up his throne. And at that point, people will be without excuse. Now, the next block of verses, it really deals with a Christian's relationship to rulers, to those that are in authority. And it simply says, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme. Now, just pause there before we go on. So Christians are responsible to obey the Lord. There's many scriptures that you've got to there from Romans 13 and Titus and so on that tell us exactly this. And the word ordinance, by the way, uh, it's this idea, uh, this every uh, law that's established 
um, by the government of the of the time, and we're to submit to those things. Uh, and again, it's uh, the ordinance, it's creation or institution law that's made by mankind. This is very simple. What it's saying, it's very clear in the text. Uh, and of course, the motivation for obedience is not avoiding punishment. You know, but it's actually to glorify God. So we don't keep the law because we don't want to get into trouble. We keep the laws of the land because we want to bring glory to God. It's honoring to God. Okay, so to honor God who ordained human government, Christians are to observe man-made laws carefully as long as, and this is the, the little caveat, as long as those laws don't conflict, conflict with the clear teaching of Scripture. And there's a good example in Acts 4.19. You can read that in your own time um, with uh, Peter, the same situation. Uh, again, Peter obviously thinking possibly of these things as he writes uh, these words to us. Um, but there is a little caveat that if we are told or in, uh, the law would make us do things that are in conflict with Scripture, then we are not bound by the law. But other than that, we are to keep the law and we're not to be uh, anti-government. Uh, it amazes me how many Christians uh, tend to be kind of anti-establishment in their, their views, their opinions and so on. When Scripture clearly tells us that we should submit to, uh, and these verses tell us, submit yourself to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. It's not because you want to. He's not asking what your political opinion is or your views are. This is something you are doing to, for, for the, the witness that you present to the world. It's for God's sake. It's for his glory. And it says, or unto governors, okay, so those again that have rule over you, uh, as unto them that are sent by him. Now, it's saying that God is the one that puts people into power anyway. And it's saying that we should therefore submit to the authorities as if it's a God has established and put them in place. Because effectively, that's what's happened. Um, again, it's been... Um, sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. And of course, that's what laws are there for, to keep people on the straight and narrow. Now, again, this section, Peter's argument leads many to believe the organized persecution that came across through the Roman Empire hadn't really begun in this area uh, where Peter's writing to. Now, this implies that all of this was written way before AD 70. Okay, um, there are those that try and argue for a later date of writing that, that's kind of blown out of the water by the fact that we have uh, fragments of the New Testament uh, books, including Second Peter and others that are found within the, the remains of the Dead Sea Scrolls. That tells us it was there by at least AD 68. Um, and it's just a good evidence for the internal writing. So Peter writing these things at a time when although the the, the laws may be not favoring Christians, the bulk of the laws Peter is saying we should obey. We should follow the laws. Again, it's because of the witness we're to present. Again, Christians uh, were then facing lies, verbal abuse, uh, but not torture and death at that point. So uh, Christians were still enjoying the protection of a legal system which commended those who obeyed the law. And that effectively is still the state in this country right now. So a believer's best defense against slanderous criticism was good behavior. That's what Peter's saying. And of course, in uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.22, we're told to give no appearance of evil. Don't do anything that even looks like it's uh, antagonistic toward the government or uh, ungodly, unhelpful. You know, whatever we do, we should be doing it for the glory of God. And we should do anything that gives the appearance of evil that people could speak against. For so is the will of God. Notice this statement. For so is the will of God that with well-doing you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. So we don't do it by going off on political quests and crusades. We do it by by being obedient, by being submissive, but at the same time being strong in that which we believe for the glory of God.
Now again, evidently Christians were being slandered and falsely accused of evil. Peter himself had been in that uh, position. And Peter now stresses that it's God's will. And this, this term expresses the result of one's purpose or desire. This is what God wants. Again, that through the excellent behaviour, they silence and literally muzzle the ignorant talk of foolish men. You know, we, we see particularly in the, the social media world in which we live, how quickly something can be taken and twisted and used against you. And this is why we need to be, you know, as wise as serpents and as harmless as doves. We need to be very careful with the things we say. We need to be care- very careful with the crusades that we, we follow the um, political things that go on and the various other movements we're very very careful uh, we don't we shouldn't Proverbs makes it clear we shouldn't become surety for a stranger don't put your support behind something you don't really fully understand or know the background and the details of be very very careful um, because people will use those things to uh, discredit you discredit the gospel speak against God and we don't want to put ourselves in that position you know, Proverbs again tells us even a fool can seem wise when he's silent. That's a good default position to adopt. You know, learn to say little, uh, to listen a lot. You know, when you speak, unless it's backed by the word of God, then don't say it. Just leave it. You know, we all have opinions. We all have views. Um, but, you know, we don't need to, to be expressing those to, to the world around us. We don't need to be, you know, ranting about this and that and the other. It's unhelpful and it's not going to bring glory to God unless it is rooted in scripture, then speak, then proclaim boldly. You know, we, we're told we should have an answer for the hope, for the reason for the hope that is in us. You know, that's true. That's right. That's proper. But when it becomes these other things, let's learn just to, to take a back seat. Let the world do the talking, you know, and we, we need to be there to use those opportunities to show by our lifestyle that we love God, that we serve God. And because of that, we're prepared to submit to those in authority. Again, the ignorance of foolish men, you know, it's interesting that Peter just uses the same Greek letter alpha as the beginning of the equivalent to our A, Aleph in the Hebrew, Alpha in the Greek. Uh, this is where we get alphabet from, by the way. It's from the Hebrew originally. Um, the first two letters of the Hebrew alphabet uh, are Aleph and Bet. Um, so that's where the, the phrase alphabet comes from. Um, of course, the Greek is, is similar in some respects, um, but uh, alpha is the first letter in their language. And the three words that are used here in the Greek all begin with the same uh, letter. It's just kind of Peter clearly likes this uh, alliteration, just emphasizing the point as he's kind of going through this. He says, as free and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God. So we're free. We're not bound by these things. Okay. But the idea is that um, our liberty that we have as Christians shouldn't negate our responsibility to be submissive to the legal authorities that exist. Okay. Now, as I said, on our, in our study on Thursday evening, as we carry on in the book of Galatians, we're going to look a lot at this whole issue of liberty. All right. But Peter says very clearly here, don't use that liberty that you have, the freedom you have in Christ. Don't use it as a cloak of maliciousness, you know, to make your own point, to try and, uh, bring others down or whatever else. Um, you know, you're not trying to win arguments here. This isn't the point. Um, but we are to be as servants of God. And the civil laws should be freely obeyed, not out of fear, but because of doing so is God's will. Christian freedom is always conditioned by Christian responsibility. 
Right, let me just say that again because I think it's a really important point. The Christian freedom, the liberty we have, is always conditioned by Christian responsibility and must never be used as a cloak or a cover-up for evil. And again, this phrase servants, um, it's very similar to that, that doulos idea of slaves that's used. Um, not, not in terms of, um, slaves that would be uh, poorly treated. That's not the idea that's being put across here. Um, but this is the, the kind of servants to God that we are, the freedom, the liberty that we enjoy as being God's servants, loved by Him, that we've chosen to, to work for Him. You know, the idea of a bond slave. Peter used, uh, Paul uses that expression. Uh, I'm a bond servant of Jesus. Christ. The idea was that a slave, after they'd served them a amount of time, typically seven years, they would be free to go. But if they loved their master, they could say, no, I don't want to go. I want to stay here. This is my home now. It's my family. And they would be taken to the door of the house and the, the master would get a, an awl and they'd pierce their ear. Uh, and that would be a sign then that they'd chosen to voluntarily stay as a servant of their master. That's the relationship Paul says he has with Jesus Christ. He says, I've chosen to stay as his servant. Though I'm freed now, I want to be his servant. And of course, for each of us as Christians, that should be our mindset, that we want to serve Jesus Christ. Well, these are the things that are asked of us. So though living as free men, you know, again, we should live as God's slaves through choice so then we're told honor all men love the brotherhood fear god honor the king four things uh, that peter then uh, puts in his summary now of how we should conduct ourselves in the world and particularly toward those in authority so the first of all is honor all it's everybody okay so it's very very simple uh it translate translates really well into the english it literally means honor everyone to have value esteem for other people it's amazing how many times Christians get into, again, that political thing and they love to try and put people down or to to um, attack uh, figures that are in the, the political uh, arena. You know, again, it's uh, such an ungodly thing to do. You know, it doesn't change. It doesn't mean you don't have or can't have your opinions, but be very careful about making those things public because this verse tells you you should show respect and esteem to everybody. Not because you agree with them, but because God has asked you to, because it's honoring and glorifying to God. Again, believers should be conscious of the fact that each human has been uniquely created in God's image. And although we have people that say all sorts of things and they, they, they spout off and, you know, we may disagree with a lot of the things they say, you know, they are still created by God and God loves them. You know, we need to be very careful at who we try and tear down and pull down. And we, we shouldn't do that to anyone. The next one is love the brotherhood. A very simple instruction that we're to have this love for each other. You know, not we should have this respect and, and so on for the world, but we should have a real deep love for each other, you know, for believers, brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, we're all part of one family. We've already been told that we're being built up a spiritual house. You know, we should have a real deep love for each other. Then fear God, very, very clear. Yeah, and the verb fear here uh, doesn't mean to be in terror, of course, but it's in awe and reverence that leads to obedience. And it's used a number of times uh, in Peter's epistles and in Corinthians as well, Second Corinthians. Uh, it's been said that a man will never truly respect people until he reverences God. And I think there's truth in that. You know, if you have a real reverence for God and you understand what God asks of us, then actually you'll find that you have a respect for other people, whether you agree with their views or opinions or not. Uh, and then the last one here, honor the king. You know, and it just comes from a verb uh, used at the beginning of the verse, 
again and it's really the respect or honor uh, that is due especially to those that are god has placed in authority the king governors and so on so peter just reiterates in a sense what he's already told us that we should honor everybody show that dignity that respect uh esteem to everybody because all created uh by god we should especially love the brotherhood love those within the church uh love christians we should have that honor and love for god that drives us to want to obey him in all things and that leads us then to honor those in authority Okay, the next uh, section takes us from verse 18 to 20, it's just a few verses here, and it really speaks of a Christian's relationship of servants to masters. Now, we have the same thing. I mean, this isn't, again, talking of um, slaves in the in the sense that um, uh, so much publicity recently talking about uh, the, the, the horrors, the, the horrible things that happened during the slave trade. Now, this is the, talking about a relationship between effectively an employee and a master. So very much like the kind of relationship we have today. Now, of course, there were abuses at the time that Peter was writing this within the Roman Empire, but a lot of servants actually were very well looked after uh, by their masters as they were cared for and provided for and all sorts so it speaks very much of the kind of relationship we would think of today between an employee and an employer so it says servants or employees if you want a better expression be subject to your masters or your employers with all fear not only to the good and gentle but also to the froward interesting statement isn't it that peter makes that actually we are to glorify god by our conduct by our conversation by the way that we react and act and respond to other people, and particularly those for whom we we work in whatever capacity. <clears throat> Again, the common word for slaves uh, is uh, not douloi, as the common term for slaves, but uh, this one okitai, which refers to a household or domestic servants. As I was just saying, is, is there is is a, a closer relationship that's being implied here? Uh, again, the servants and slaves made up a very high percentage of the early church. No surprise, really, when you think about it. You know, an undeserved punishment of suffering was common for the underlings at that time. Okay, now, Peter challenged Christian slaves to submit and respect even those who were bad masters, bad employers, those who were harsh. Uh, and again, the, the Greek word that's uh, used here, uh, sclosis, it literally means curved, bent, or the idea of twisted, not straight. It's actually where we get uh, sclosis, that medical term, which refers to the kind of curvature of the spine. It comes from this word. So, you know, even if you've got a boss that's a bad boss, that's not a good boss, that's a bit twisted, you know, well, we're told we should still be subject to them. Why? Because it glorifies God. It's not about us trying to put our own opinions or views or, you know, demand justice or whatever else. That's the, the world can go down those roads and let them do it. That's not the way we should live as Christians. And then we're told for this is thankworthy if a man for conscience toward God. Now, again, this isn't that you may make your boss happy if he's a bad boss. This is because of our conscience toward God. It's because of our love for God. Endure grief, suffering wrongfully. Peter's not saying that, you know, it's right that you suffer wrongfully. But he's saying even if you do suffer wrongfully, remember that primarily you are a servant of God. As a servant of God, you're an ambassador for him. And whatever circumstance or situation you're in, you and your conduct, your attitude will reflect on what others perceive and see of God. So Peter sets forth this principle uh, that can be applied to any situation where unjust suffering occurs. And he says, for what glory is it if, if when you be buffeted for your faults, you shall take it patiently? 
In other words, like, if you've done bad stuff, if you've done something wrong, if, if you've stepped out of line at work, well, you expect to be treated accordingly. But if when you do well and suffer for it, you take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. You know, if you're falsely accused or if your your boss or whoever uh, treats you in a way that doesn't seem right, doesn't seem fair, maybe you get overlooked for a promotion. Maybe somebody else is uh, appointed to a position that you thought you deserved or should have had. You know, that, that's the kind of context, I guess, that in, in today's situation we could think of. Many other examples I'm sure you can think of yourself. But the point is that when you endure those things, it's acceptable with God. That word acceptable, it, it doesn't just mean, oh, okay, it means it's pleasing to God. So it's something that God is, just as when God accepts a sacrifice, remember, a sacrifice had to be pure, you know, without blemish. That's how sacrifices were to be offered up. In sincerity. Well, it's speaking of how when we take things that, that we don't deserve, you know, we, we, we've been treated in a way that we shouldn't have been, and we're patient in regard to it, you know, we accept it, we don't kick back, we don't make a big fuss about those things. Well, it's acceptable with God. Remember too, the scripture tells us promotion doesn't come from the east or the west, but from the Lord. You know, it's amazing how many people um, in their Christian lives kind of understand and, and, and repeat these verses in their professional lives. You know, the idea of sitting at the bottom of the table and waiting to be asked up just goes out the window. Oh, well, that's OK in church. But in work, you know, you, unless you push yourself forward, you're not going to get, you know, noticed and things like that. Well, OK, I get that in the worldly sense. That's true. But we're not in that worldly sense. We are serving God and God is the one who we've entrusted our lives to. We say that we are walking by faith. We say we trust God. Well, then let's trust him. Let's trust him with our careers. Let's trust him with everything in our lives. And if God wants us to be promoted, we'll be promoted. You know, so many Christians go for that kind of next level up and they get there and it can be the worst thing that ever happens to them. Because all of a sudden they end up with greater accountability or responsibility from a a work perspective. And suddenly they have less time for God. They have less time for their families. They have less time to, to devote to the things of God. You know, we need to be so careful that we don't just try and climb the, the corporate ladder, as it were. And I know, I know not every, all of us here have kind of day jobs in a sense, but you get the idea. Apply it to your own circumstance. The same thing applies. We should trust God with everything. Uh, and you know it's not up to us to try and bring ourselves to that next level we're to trust in the lord you know we're, we're to seek him with all of our hearts not rely on the things that we think we know but we're told in proverbs chapter 3 verses 4 and 5 that he will direct our paths okay so that's that's the the, the key for us we trust in the lord okay so no credit accrues for enduring punishment for doing wrong. I mean, as we said already, that, 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 if you've done something wrong, then in a, in a, a corporate or professional environment, you expect there to be some consequence. But it's respectful submission to undeserved suffering that finds favor with God because such behavior demonstrates His grace. You know, maybe you, you, you thought about it, maybe you haven't, but you know, the attitude you show to your boss when you are asked to do something that you don't think is right or fair, and truthfully, they probably perceive and understand that as well. But the attitude can have a profound effect on their lives too. You know, this this goes back to the, the, the whole submitting to authority because, you know, God loves all people. God created, you know, every individual and God is not willing that any should perish. And how do you know that your submission, your um, godly response to a situation could be the catalyst that sets that individual on a, a journey that will lead them to a place where they find Jesus as their saviour. 
You know, our, our greatest goal when we get to heaven, our greatest joy is not going to be that we achieved or attained a particular status in life, a particular position. You know, our greatest joy is going to see people saved. I mean, Paul makes that very, very clear. You know, the crown of rejoicing. What's that about? It's about seeing people when we're raptured and we look around and we see people that are saved. You know, wouldn't it be great on that day if you look around and you see those people that you've met through your life, through your career, that maybe were really difficult people to work with or work for, you know, but maybe through your influence they've come to know the Lord. You know, and all of that stuff you had to endure, that that won't matter at that point. When we're being raptured, when we are going up, when we're meeting the Lord in the air, when we're taken back to heaven, when we're standing before the throne, you know, you get to stand next to somebody that maybe was a really uh, unreasonable employer and you get to stand next to them worshipping God. None of that will matter what happened on earth. What will matter is that we are there before the throne and we get to worship God together. Okay, so the next section, Christ now is an example of suffering wrongfully. So Peter gives us, it's kind of expounding on what we've just been saying, of not only that, that we should do it, but why we should do it. And Christ is pointed out to us now as an example, a great example of this. So for even, Peter says, hereunto you are called. So this is part of your calling because Christ also suffered for us leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Peter's saying, look at Jesus. Look at the way that he suffered unjustly and that you are now asked to follow his steps because you said you want to follow him. Well, this is where that route takes you. So Peter powerfully supported his exhortation to slaves by citing Christ's example of endurance in unjust suffering. And it says again that you are called, and Christians are called to follow Christ, to emulate his character and conduct because he suffered for them. And the, you know, the only right a Christian has is the right to give up his rights. That's what Oswald Chambers says. I love that, that quote. You know, we often, well, we live in a world, don't we, that everybody talks about their rights. You know, oh, do you know your rights and what up? Well, the only right a Christian really has is the right to give up his rights, to trust God. Because that's what it's about. It's not saying that we are, you know, to be doormats as such. And yet at the same time, Jesus spoke about turning the other cheek. If somebody wrongs you, you know, didn't speak about revenge. Of course, the old covenant, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth and so on. But Jesus comes and gives us a new way of living uh, based upon love, based upon our relationship with him, based upon the example that he sets. Again, this word example. Uh, the word in the Greek is literally an underwriting. So, you know, again, for even here unto you are called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us, giving us an underwriting. Okay, and it appears only here in the New Testament, and it refers to a writing, a drawing that a student reproduces. All right, so, you know, the work of the master, you try and uh, and emulate that. Um, now I, I happened to see this week, um, we may be getting to this to show afterwards, but, uh, James and Caitlin did some fantastic drawings. Now I'm guessing that they were drawn from a, a picture or something, um, that they, they'd seen or that, that Sarah or Leah had given them and they tried to emulate this and they did a really good job. It was fantastic. But that's the idea. It's looking at something that exists and copying that. We are to look at Christ and to copy his example. That's exactly what this text is saying to us, that we should literally try to emulate Jesus in the way he was to other people. And think of the abuse that Jesus endured 
without turning around, without fighting back, without putting a little snide remark or whatever else. And we're told of Jesus who did no sin. Neither was guile found in his mouth. Now, actually, when you know we're treated um, in, in a way that we don't enjoy sometimes, there may be some validity in sometimes the way that people respond to us or deal with us. We may have said something out of turn. We may have responded in the right. Well, none of that's true with Jesus. Jesus did not do anything wrong. He didn't sin. There was no guile found in his mouth. He, he never made a sarcastic comment. You know, never muttered anything under his breath. You know, we're, we're all guilty of those things. But the contrast here is that Jesus really didn't do anything wrong. And all these quotes here, of course, come from Isaiah 53. And, you know, we know Jesus didn't commit sin before or during any time uh, his suffering. He was completely innocent in both deed and word. There was no deceit. Again, the word doulos uh, was found in his mouth. Now, again, who were, when he was reviled, reviled not again. This is the model we're being given to follow. This is the template. This is what we are to try and trace and copy and, and to, to reproduce. Um, who, when he suffered, he threatened not. I mean, just think of the power that Jesus Christ had. He is God in the flesh. He's omnipotent. He could have called down legions of angels. You know, none of those things. He didn't respond when he was threatened, but committed himself to him that judges righteously. Notice what Jesus did. Rolls it all back on God, leaves it to God. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. That's what, we, what the scripture tells us. That's how Jesus lived. That's how he tells us to live. Don't try and get even. Don't try and make um, somebody pay for what they've done for you. Leave it to the Lord. Trust the Lord. You carry on living a godly, righteous life. That's what we're called to. And of course, Christ, therefore, becomes this perfect example of a patient, submissive servant. Uh, to unjust suffering uh, of course humanly speaking the provocation uh, to retaliate during christ's arrest trial and crucifixion was extreme and no doubt jesus there, there was those moments when he was tempted to respond but he doesn't and yet he suffered in silence committing himself to god now of course in one sense the reason that jesus didn't respond was because he knew as he stood there he was guilty well, he hadn't, he hadn't done anything wrong, but he was standing there in our place. So that's why, well, one of the reasons he makes no defense, because he knew that he was, God was just in bringing that punishment and judgment upon him. That's why he makes no defense of himself, because he's standing there in our shoes. So he leaves it to the Father to vindicate him, and of course, in God's own time. And that's exactly what we must do. I think he's attributed to Francis of Assisi, where he said, Lord, forgive me for the sin of always trying to vindicate myself. I, I don't know about you. That's something that, that I struggle with. You know, you always want to try and vindicate yourself in some way or another. If somebody says something of you that's not true or not accurate, you want to try and put the record straight. You know, somebody um, beeps, hoots at you and you're driving a car and you weren't doing anything wrong. You know, that, that kind of red mist rises, doesn't it? And you feel really agitated and you want to try and justify that I was right. And, you know, and look, let it go. Just God, leave it to God. Even little things like that. We don't have to get even with anybody. All we need to do is go to God. God's the one that's in control. He's in charge. Trust him. And we're told who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree. That we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. Again, these quotes coming from Isaiah now notice again the statement here. That who his own self bear our sins. He took the punishment in his own body in the tree 
But the, con- the, 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 the result of that is that we now, being dead to sin, should live unto righteousness. All right, so the point that, that Peter concludes here with is that actually we are down to live a righteous life and we do it because of what Christ accomplished for us. So it really spins the whole of this around and brings us back to the heart of the gospel that we have been forgiven. You know, because we have been forgiven, we are to show that grace and that forgiveness to others. You know, be it those uh, in our family, be it those in our community, be it those in government, those who wrong us in any way, we're to show grace to them because we've received grace. And then it's just, this last line says, by whose stripes you were healed. Now, again, Peter explains why the one who could have destroyed his enemies with the word, patiently endured the pain and humiliation of the cross. It was because of us. And he had to. He was in our shoes. God was justly judging our sins, which his son born. You know, he was made sin for us. Now, in the word, as his chapter's comment, he says, in the Greek, the words, our sins, are near the beginning of the verse, uh, and thus stand out emphatically while he himself stresses Christ's personal involvement. So the beginning in, in the Greek text is the word our sins, or right at the beginning of this verse. That's the focus. This is why he's done what he's done. Again, the we being dead to sins, his death makes it possible for believers to be free from both the penalty and the power and to live for him. This is the power of sin, so that we can live for him, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. And again, Christ suffered so it would be possible for Christians to follow his example both in suffering and in righteous living. And this word healed here, Peter makes a general reference to salvation by his wounds. You have been healed. Uh, it's interesting, the context. This is a done deal. It's past tense, the way that Peter writes it for us. Uh, and it doesn't imply physical healing. Often we use this verse in regard to physical healing and so on. You know, and there are other verses that, that speak of that the Lord wants us to be healthy and well and so on. But this is speaking of our, the spiritual condition because it's speaking of something that is complete as Peter writes this. Okay. So healing is an established fact who his own self again bear our sins in his body on the tree that we being dead to see should live unto righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. The stripes again, just reference the salvation that we have, uh, those wounds, the lashes placed upon him by the Romans, the scourging um, and so on, accomplishing that healing as he bore the wrath that we deserved. And then the very last verse really just ties all of this together, that Christ is the author and the finisher of salvation. And we read, for you were as sheep gone astray. But now this is, again, the contrast between how we were and the way we lived previously, both in the, the lust of the flesh, but also in our desire to uh, ridicule or to tear down government, to speak against those in authority, whatever, is speaking of the way we were. But we were a sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and the bishop of your souls. Now, this expression, Christ not only set the example, okay, we've already seen the example, the template we're to follow and provide salvation, but he also gives guidance. Now, this is what Peter's trying to say that, again, as that, that borrow from, uh, um, Hebrews, that he's the author and the finisher, you know, that Jesus gives the guidance and the protection to those who were headed away, 
like a sheep going astray. And that's really the idea here. The words that we have translated as returned, uh, but now returned, the idea is actually turned about. Okay, rather than returned. So, you know, for you as sheep going astray, we were going the wrong way, but now we have turned and gone in the other direction. We've been turned about unto the shepherd. So he's, he's a shepherd who cares for us and tends for his flock, who leads us, provides for us in every situation. And then the word bishop is this Greek word, uh, episkopon, and it's where we get, uh, the, the phrase, the episcopalian and so on, uh, where a typical, uh, ch- style of church government, where you have bishops ruling over or head handing over, uh, the church. Um, but the idea really just simply means an overseer. That's the way it's used scripturally. Um, it, it really in scripture, the word bishop is synonymous with the word elder. All a bishop was was an elder with additional responsibilities, and they were an overseer. Okay, so we have sometimes a mixed understanding because of the the way these terms are used today. But scripturally, the word bishop, it just refers to an overseer, somebody who watches over. And this is exactly what Jesus does. So he leads us, he guides us, but he watches over our souls. Okay, so this is, again, just bringing it back. Why we should live the way that Peter's saying we should live is because of Jesus, because of all that he has done for us. And he is a shepherd, he's leading us, and he's watching over our souls. And he doesn't want us to get damaged by the things of the world by going back into those things of the world that maybe once we lived in and we we um, pursued in different ways. So Christ matched this guidance and management of those who commit themselves to his care. And that's the key. It's about committing ourselves to him and to his lordship in our lives. Okay. Please read ahead, chapter 3 next time. I'm not sure how far we'll get, but by God's grace, we will dive in uh, if we're not raptured in the, the next seven days, which is fine by me if we are. Um, but if we are still here next Sunday, then we will carry on uh, and just see where the Lord leads us. Let's, let's bow our hearts. Well, Father, we just thank you for your grace, Lord. We thank you for this opportunity this morning, uh, Lord, just to study these things, Father, to look at your word, to be reminded, Lord, how we should live as Christians, the relationships we should have with those about us. The Lord, we are called to be salt and to be light. We are called to be ambassadors. Lord, to represent our king in a foreign realm, this place that is not our home. We are just pilgrims passing through. And so Lord, help us in our relationship with others to, to show, Lord, the wonderful hope that we have by the way that we live. Lord, not to end up walking with the ungodly or standing in the way of the the sinners or sitting in the seat of the scornful. Lord, may we be separate from the world. Lord, may we be happy to stand out. And if we suffer for doing the things that are right, well then, Lord, you will be glorified. Uh, Father, we just pray you give us the strength, the wisdom and the discernment. So, Lord, understand these things, apply them to our lives. We ask it all now in the name of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen.